Canes Country Podcast and the Hurricanes are the best team in the league. Last year or last week, I said that they were the worst team in the league because they lost three straight to Tampa Bay. And now they're the best team in the league because they've won four straight. They've beaten Florida twice. They've beaten Nashville. And they've beaten Detroit. This is the Canes Country Podcast. I'm Brett Finger, and I'm joined by Ryan Hankel and Andrew Schnicker. How are you two gentlemen doing on this fine Friday, March 5th? I'm doing great. We're officially a week away from the... uh, You just reminded me we're officially a week away from the one-year anniversary of everything... Turning completely upside down, so I'm a little less great thinking about that, but great still. I think the league shut down on my birthday, which is like March 12th. Yeah. So just, you know, for all of you to remember that. But um, I just remember sitting there, I'd come come home, you know, for the weekend to see my parents. And then I just like, it's like I'm on my phone, Twitter, and then it's like NBA shuts down. And then NHL follows like the next day, league shuts down. And then I'm like, oh. I get, I was like, all right, cool precautions, you know. Here we are a year later. Well, right, it was, it's funny because Rod Brindamore cut, got asked about that uh, in one of his availabilities this week, and basically said something along those same lines that everybody just kind of thought they were going to go home for a couple weeks and then get back to it. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> a lot of things did not happen the way we thought. Uh, including maybe the first two games of the week in Florida, where those were interesting games between the Canes and the Panthers. Uh, the Hurricanes were coming off losing uh, three straight to Tampa. Uh, they played Florida earlier in the year before the road trip started, or before that series with Tampa started, and they lost in overtime. I mean, I'm not really sure how they won both of those games in, in Florida. It was a 4-3 shootout win and a 3-2 overtime win. Both of those games felt very uh, risky and teetering very close to the edge of not being victories. Um, but the Hurricanes came through, and their skill, again, came to the forefront in, in the extra periods and overtime. Let's start with the 40 games. It feels like it was a lifetime ago, honestly. Every time we do this, it feels like the most recent or the earliest games in the week for us yeah. feel like a lifetime ago. They feel so long ago. Well, there's, there's just so many games, and it's like... Because, uh, yeah, it's like four games a week. Like, usually it's like three, maybe even two on some weeks, but that never happens now. And it's, and it's like every game, it's like we're about to, every game the Hurricanes play is a roller coaster, so it feels like... They <laughs> there have are no so, close games. Yeah. There are no, I mean, there are no not close games for the Hurricanes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no lead is comfortable. And we, we saw that again this week. Uh, so the 40 games, Jake Bean scored his first NHL goal. That was an exciting thing that happened. Nedeljkovic and Reimer both got a start out against the Panthers. And those two games were interesting because it kind of felt, because going into the series, or th- these two teams are very well might be competing for two and three in the division. And it's probably going to be dead even through the rest of the season because that's what's been so far. Um, did you all get the same kind of vibe? Yeah, I think Tampa's probably a step above the Hurricanes and Panthers. Uh, I think so far from what we've seen, there's no reason to doubt that. I would not be surprised at all to see the Hurricanes and Panthers in that 2-3 matchup when the playoffs start. Yeah, it's like, I think the biggest difference between like really the Hurricanes, Panthers, and Tampa is like Andre Vasilevsky. I mean, he, I think he could be like league MVP, like, 
like you hardly ever see it go to a goaltender, but the way he plays the game, his numbers are just absolutely ridiculous. He had he was um he just had like a two hundred plus minute like shootout shutout streak. Didn't he and get like, shutouts in both of his next two starts after the one against the Hurricanes too? I think. Yep. So that's in this next two. He's just putting up such ridiculous numbers, and he's such a good goaltender. I think it's really what's been separating Tampa from like Florida and Carolina currently. If like, if like either those teams had a goaltender like Andre Vasilevsky, like it could easily be swapped out. Whoa, 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 Ryan, you're forgetting about Alex Nedeljkovic and his heroic efforts lately. Very Vasilevsky esque. <laughs> you know, Brett, you, you, good point. Good point. Thank he certainly you. did it in the second Florida game. Yes, he did. Um, not not the same, no. Yeah, because Vasilevsky starts like every game for the Lightning too. Like he's like played like I think like fifteen or like seventeen of like their of like their twenty one games or something. It's like he's yeah. just been the guy putting up these numbers day in day out. I'm just upset by the lack of faith in her Carolina Hurricanes legend Curtis McElhinney. I mean. Played a really good game against Carolina, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah, welcome to the Tampa we Bay Lightning podcast. So yeah, they 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 escaped Florida. Uh, the big play at the end of the overtime game, uh, Natchez and Aho combining, and they combined again in Nashville for a for a gorgeous goal. Man, they're both really good, aren't they? Can we talk about Martin Natchez in particular over the past week? Did he? I feel like he doesn't get enough notice when you're talking about like this team's future and his ceiling is probably a step below your like Aho and Svechnikov, but Martin Natchez is really, really good. And I think he's going to be really, really good and keep getting better. I mean, he's got a chance to be a star for this team too. And I think somebody pointed out last night that if Martin Natchez played on a bigger market team, he would be getting more buzz in that regard. And I, I, I think that's true. I think if you look at, you know, kind of the big three in terms of young forwards with Ajo, Svechnikov, and Natchez, Hurricanes are in really good shape. Yeah, I think, I don't remember who it was. It was somebody like an a respected prospect analytic guy. And I think it was an RAPM chart. And it was comparing Nick Suzuki, who was all the buzz in Canada, playing oh, the Canadians. Yeah. The next right, first round. That was Cam Robinson, I believe. Natchez. Cam Robinson. Yeah. He had like this chart, and it was like Martin Natchez had basically similar numbers as Nick Suzuki, but got almost considerably less buzz. And I, I remember last year, actually, in the Calder race, like Suzuki and Natchez had extremely similar numbers too, as well. Natchez has been out, outrageously good. And I guess we can just flip to the Detroit game last night. The shot that Natchez put over the blocker's shoulder or blocker side shoulder of Jonathan Bernier. I mean, literally no one is ever going to stop that shot. It was so pretty like top corner snipe and like short side corner. It's like, it's kind of like a really hard one to hard, hard one to aim for like the way his body was positioned. And it's like, Oh, a couple defenders in front that, they, they were effectively screening Bernie, yeah. like you said, not that he was going to stop, but that he had to kind of put it perfectly, too, to get it past them. I mean, that was that was something. That was um, – this is the only comparison I would ever make between these two players, and I really do mean ever. I am not sure I have seen a Hurricanes player pick a corner like that since Alexander Semen. <laughs> 
and I, and I swear to God, I will never compare Martin Natchez and Alexander Semen ever again. But that is that is what that, that shot reminded me of. Still in your contract, Alexander Semen. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. I I think the thing with Natchez is I always was watching him. I I always thought he had the pieces, and I've it's been a waiting game to see if he could really piece it together. His speed is out of this world. His ability to make space, create space of his skating, it's just next level. He's such a good skater. And he has really, really good vision. And I think the thing was always, can he put that together? Can he get the same pace as his skating with his stick and then add on to that, you know, a good shot, uh, having the right players with him for those playmaking skills to really blossom, having that chemistry. And I think, like, granted, I we I doubt we'll see him play with Ajo, but I would love to see him play more of Ajo because, like, they're back-to-back games with those beautiful passes lacing right to one another. And actually, after the, um, I believe it was after the Nashville game, Aho man was talking about Natchez, and he just said he understands how Natchez thinks the game. That's why he thinks it's so easy to play with him because he knows how he would think the game. And you want players like that that are on that same level. You want them to play together. Can you imagine Aho Teravine and Natchez playing on a line together? Here's like, my thing. They, <laughs> Aho would score ninety percent of the goals. And Teravainen and Natchez would just pass the puck back and forth for 30 minutes consecutively, and they would never yeah. shoot the puck. That's the only hesitation I have about that. <laughs> I, I think what we see now with, yeah, I think there'd be some shortcomings to them playing together all the time at five on five. But I think we see what we see now of pairing up Aho and Natchez, like when there's that open ice and extra room to operate yeah. and skate around and make plays, like. The goal in Nashville, I believe, was a four-on-four goal. And then, obviously, in, in overtime. I think those are the situations that it makes the, all the sense in the world to pair up guys like that. So, yeah, Natchez was incredible this past week. And staying on this in this uh, Detroit game, uh, a lot of things happened. So, finally, we had the family reunion that we've all been waiting for. Jordan and Mark Stahl played. Thoughts, thoughts on Jordan and Mark Stahl, the story of the night. Are I thought Jordan that was Stahl's... the... Oh, no, you go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. Well, I said, well, Jordan Stahl Everyone's eager to get in goal. on this Stahl conversation. Jordan Stahl scored the uh, game-winning goal, so I think you have to give the edge to him here, right? Stahl had a great game. Three points. Really I, think... I was actually looking at this because I, I wrote the about last night for the game. <laughs> I kind of wanted to, like... I was, I felt... I was like, M. Stahl... Mark Stahl for all of you kids at home. <laughs> and thought Stahl, Thank I feel you. like, actually was playing a really good defensive game. I mean, he had the highest Corsi 4 percentage among Detroit defensemen. He was, like, 59%. He actually had, like, the highest high danger chances for for Detroit defensemen. He only had a – he had he was actually, you know, just a flat zero for the game. The only goal against him was a, the power play goal Andre Svechnikov scored where Mark Stahl was on the opposite side of the ice, like, boxing out his guy. Like, nothing he could influence the play at all. And I thought actually Mark Stahl played a really good game for Detroit in a game where they got like five goals hung on him. So I actually thought that was actually kind of like a heavyweight battle. But yeah, Stahl with three points and a game-winning goal, I feel like was which, much. Which Stahl? Oh, J. Stahl for J. Stahl. Okay, good. Jordan yeah. for the kids at home. <laughs> remember when the Hurricanes? The remember within the first couple of years that the Hurricanes had Eric and Jordan both, and somehow going out and getting Mark too was like the dream. That was a very different time. That's true. The Hurricanes' defense was uh, 
not what it is today in those times, especially Jordan Stahl's first year with the Kings. Yeah. Yeah, I like to forget about that time. So let's do that. Let's just totally, let's never talk about that time ever again on the podcast. Yes, I already brought up Alexander Simmons. Yeah. Andrew's just just looking at the glory days. I'm I'm (laughs) reminiscent today, boys. (laughs) (laughs) They're too good now. You got to look back to when they were painfully mediocre. (laughs) The good old days. Yeah, I like that. But no, we really just talked about the stalls for that long. No, it was the Svechnikov Bowl, the Battle of the Svechnikovs, Svechnikar Armageddon. I don't know. Svechmageddon? Svechmageddon. I don't know. Um, Best I could do. Yeah, it it is probably better than mine. One of them really stood out. And, of course, that was Andre. The the beginning of the third period, my God, like what they they, they made the the line shift or the line changes, uh, and they had Svechnikov with Stall and Fast to start the third period, and Svech went into like sicko mode, like it was crazy. He was just yeah, he, he was just all over it. Yeah, beyond him, obviously scoring in the first period on the power play, and what was really like I I said this um, during the game. It's funny to say this about a player in their third year in the league, but it had been a while since we'd seen it. It was a vintage Svechnikov shot, but yeah, I think the biggest thing was in the third period, especially. That's the mo- that's the first time I think in a hot minute we've seen that just absolutely yeah dominating Andrei Svechnikov that I feel like we saw. Last year, we saw it a lot early. I mean, people have forgotten this over his slump and with some other guys like Trocek and Natchez stepping up. The first few games of the season, as you know, especially before the pause, Andrei Svechnikov was almost on another level with the way that he was playing. And I feel like we finally kind of saw that again last night. Yeah, he, he really took control. And that's recently, we haven't really seen that from him. Quite honestly, we haven't seen that from him or Sebastian Ajo. It's been kind of like the other guys kind of carrying the load, and you know they've been putting up points. Uh, you know, Svech, his only goal in the past like twelve games was an empty netter, that kind of stuff. So it was really good to see him kind of start to take charge and and dominate a game the way that he's able to. You know, hopefully that's that's good for him moving forward because that goal on the power play was outstanding. Then his his you know like ten seconds into the period he was breaking away from the Detroit defense and going on a breakaway and almost scoring. Then he's recovering the loose puck and he's cycling it back around and he's just he's doing all the things that you need him to do. Um, and and he was the reason why they they got off to such a good start in that third period. He pretty much started the offensive zone possession that led to the Jordan Stahl goal, and then he and Jordan uh, helped force a turnover in the corner of the offensive zone that led to Jesper Fast goal, and he made a <laughs> ridiculously quick yeah. stick move around a defender's stick and set up Fast perfectly. I mean, it was just it was a it was just a classic Andrei Svechnikov period that that you really wanted and kind of needed to see. Can we get Afghani to play against Andre like every game? It's hard to say that that that's 
totally a coincidence, but I, I think there's probably some other factors at play there too. There's a little merit to it. I think so. Oh, there is. And I, but it, I think it also could though that that him having that game in that situation can also be the spring, uh, something that springboards him going forward as well. Yeah. So it was a nice family affair last night and it was watched by 2,925 fans in attendance at PNC. That was jarring. Uh, I'll just say, um, (laughs) yeah, really sell out for 15%. It is. It's a 15% capacity sellout, but yeah, it was, it was very weird to see, to, to be around people in, in a venue. Like it, it felt similar to how it felt when the pandemic started and sports eventually came back and there were no people. It was kind of the same where I was like, there's people here. This is really yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, I was sitting there and I was like, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, like there's like these like, combating thoughts in my mind about like oh man this is this is really cool but at the same time oh i'm kind of nervous and and all this stuff and but it was i think on the whole a, a very positive night for for everyone involved storm surge in salute of rex respiratory therapist Topeka mahotra so that was really cool all the players lifted their sticks and pointed towards the jumbotron it was a really cool moment yeah there, there were fans there were People yelling "shoot" on the power play. There were people uh, just yelling and yelling ob- obscene things at players, and it was like, "Man, nature is healing. We are back. We are we are back in business." So yeah, thoughts on on there being people there. I think um, first of all, I think you know I was watching the game on TV, and for most of it, you know that didn't really register with me until uh, the last few minutes of the third period. I could definitely hear the kind of dull yeah. roar of the crowd on my TV. And, and you know, I think um, I, I haven't experienced this with the Hurricanes yet, but I kind of had a similar experience to you, Brett, last weekend when I covered um, last Sunday. I covered NC State basketball, and they, they did something similar. They let in a much larger group of uh, students and I think Wolfpack Club members than they have before. And, yeah, it was for the first, like – little bit like hearing the students cheer like everything hearing them like you know well we all anyone in this area knows about uh nc state fans and referees booing them it it, it, it was weird but then you know as it goes along i think I, I think it felt good i think especially for those of us that watching sports and attending sports and covering sports is such a big part of our lives mm-hmm. i think after the whole past year seeing at least a small number of people back in the stands, I, I think it gives a little bit more feeling of a, that we're returning slowly, little by little, to some sense of normalcy, and I think we all need that these days. Yeah, honestly. I think, like, yeah, like, we always can say, you know, like, fans give players a little bit of a boost, but I think there is, like, some merit to that, like, you know, like, they kind of gives some anticipation. Like players can anticipate like a big hit coming or something coming because like fan reactions. Like there is like little tiny like tidbits of like fan noise that like actually helps players out. I've like I've like heard the players like talk about. But I do think it definitely helps create like a buzz, create that energy. Like even two thousand five hundred people will you know 
make the play it, it's noticeable it's a lot of people still and i think i think the players do notice it like i'm not going to go out here and say fans in the arena are the reason the players are able to reach out why aren't they paying the fans level. eight million dollars a year <laughs> what are you talking about dougie the fans deserve that money <laughs> or it's like what is the uh seattle seahawks thing like number 12 or 12 number man. is that 12, 12 man, man yeah yeah Hey, Arrowhead Stadium is louder, but that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I just know, like, they market it more. Yeah. They're 12th man. But um, I think the fans really do, I think, help the players. And I think it's great to see. Like, I think it's thing, like, it is kind of like, like Don Waddell was saying this during when they first announced they were having players back in. Like, they want to do it right. They want to make sure there's no hiccups with this at all. Because it it is a risk, you know, putting 2,500 people in a contained area, in a closed system you know there's the risk of it like this pandemic still an ongoing thing but they're doing everything they can they want to do this right so like that way we can slowly approach getting back to what is going to be normal for a foreseeable future hopefully it will continue to be good and yeah like like you said during the final couple minutes there was just a standing ovation through the rest of the game that was cool it was, and Dougie said after the game that, or Jordan said after the game that Dougie said after the game that yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it felt, felt like, like a playoff. playoff game compared to the empty PNC arenas recently. So there's that. And, you know, there were a few moments where if it sounded like there were like 16,000 people there, there were a few moments like that. Yeah, I, I asked Stahl. Svechnikov and Rod all after the game in that post game about playing in front of the fans and you could tell they all said that they noticed it and it made an impact and you could tell that they were being genuine with that too that they weren't just kind of saying some buzzwords like oh you know we love the fans like it was I got the sense that that was a legitimate feeling from them Uh, and speaking of Rod 100th NHL win behind the bench in the regular season at least um, he cared so much about it. I know he was really, <laughs> really put a lot of into it. Yeah, he had no idea, and he he said that coaching is bad for your health, and he's right about that. I would think the twelfth fastest coach in NHL history to win one hundred games. Uh, Sarah Sivian from the Athletic tweeted out last night. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> did you see the um? Did you see the reply that she quote tweeted where someone was like, <laughs> yeah. what do they like line up the 12 and make them race or something? <laughs> Rod would win, I think. Yeah, I don't that, know. That's... Rod the Bod's all muscle, but I don't know if he's got that speed factor ever since that. Have you seen team. these NHL head coaches? I guess good point. Regardless yeah, yeah. of his knee surgery. It, it's, not, it's not about being fast. It's just about being fast relative to your peers. Yeah, there you go. It's somewhat surprising. It's like, because you know he's been great. And I mean, like, it feels like half of his losses so far came during the first half of the 2018-19 season. I'd be really interested to look at his... I, I tweeted out his overall record as a head coach last night. And the other thing that's remarkable, too, is you got to consider his second season was cut 14 games short. But I would be really interested to look at his record from January 2019 onward. I would guess it's uh it's got to be pretty uh, good. It has to be one of the best in the league, right? Because probably it, the best, I would imagine. Because the Hurricanes were were they not? It was them and St. Louis as the best teams in the second half of the yeah. eighteen nineteen season. Yeah, 
and yeah, then St. Louis was also like dead last or something. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, sort of dead last in the playoffs. Carolina and St. Louis up. were both way out of the playoff picture, and they were t- the two best teams in the league in the second half. And then last year, they were pretty good uh, in terms of standings, fourth in the division when the season ended, or when yeah, the season got cut were, short. They were like the number six in the bubble. Six, in, so yeah. He's probably not. I'm guessing if you take pretty much any length of time over the past two regular, couple regular seasons, and look at the winningest coach in that time period, it's probably going to be John Cooper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Rod's got to be probably, probably top three. I would say. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if he's like number three, and then this year, you know, they're they're one of the top three or four teams in the league right now. So I think they're third, and then of course. One of the teams above them is Tampa. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then there's Toronto, which, you know, they're having a great season, but I think I'm now the backup goalie for at least one of the teams in that division. So, why is everybody always hating on Toronto? I just feel so bad for Toronto. Doesn't everybody just feel bad for Toronto? Why can't they just be a juggernaut, you know? So, how does this affect Toronto, Brett? <laughs> <laughs> they're going to um, do some some stuff and some things and lose in the first round of the playoffs. I'm, I'm sorry, Toronto. You could be as good as you want. But You're losing to Montreal on the first round. It's happening. I'm sorry. It's, it's like it's A, the record, and B, the fan base. It's The fan base wants to believe Toronto's the best team every year, year in and year out. And we, we would give Toronto the benefit of the doubt if not for that fact. I will never give Toronto the benefit of the doubt, just to clarify. Uh, he's not speaking for me. I would never give him the benefit of the doubt on anything. Speaking of someone who does not deserve the benefit of the doubt, let's talk about Brett Pesci's slew foot last Whoa, night because good that. God was that a decision that he made. Uh, so was... he – it when you look in the NHL rulebook and all the definitions are probably terrible, but when you look at slew foot – the video, if you were to look on their like series of videos on the NHL website explaining rules, which is hilarious. If you go to Slewfoot now, Brett Pesci's Slewfoot should be there because that was one of the most heinous Slewfoots I have ever seen. It was just blatantly shameless. To quote was... Brian Pesci, Pesci's own father. Yes. That was dirty Pesci. That yeah. was hilarious. That made me laugh. That that yeah. that was But yeah, no, it, it was just it was shocking because that was such a, like we said, it was a dirty play. It was a dangerous play. There is absolutely no reason for, I don't care if the guy in the five seconds before it that we didn't see, I don't care if the guy slashed Pesci, Pesci across the throat with his <laughs> stick. You can't do that. And it, But it was just so shocking because like, and I think part of the reason Pesci got fined and not suspended is because he had no priors. I, I've never seen Brett Pesci do – I mean, I was racking my brain last night. I have never seen Brett Pesci do anything that comes even in the same remotely at all close to something like that. Yeah, it was beyond uncharacteristic. It was a dangerous and dirty play. And I said last night that, I mean, I – I remember watching his NHL debut, like I've like in his six years in the league, back back when he was number fifty four, dating all the way, 
dang all the way back he has never done anything like that and that's why it was so shocking like i couldn't believe that he that he did that and yeah it was like it was it was so dangerous and so dirty and he got a five thousand dollar fine and quite frankly he deserved a suspension literally the only reason he didn't get a suspension in my mind is because he has no history and that was just a very confusing and bad moment for him but he was lucky that he didn't get a suspension for that yeah he's, he's, lucky, he's lucky. lucky and the hurricanes are lucky because he's been so good they would not want to be yeah. without brett Pesci for a couple of games which Again, go, I mean, obviously, you just can't do that because it's dangerous and dirty and wrong, and you could really hurt somebody. But also, if you're Brett Pesci and you're as important as you are to this team, you can't be out there making decisions like that. Yeah, it's it was an embarrassing moment, like for Pesci and the organization. I feel like it's that was like as dirty as it can come, and like I I think that there should have been a ga- at least a game maybe up to three game suspension for that because it's blatant. It was intentional and it was very can cause very serious harm and injury to a player. And I think like, you've got to say like, if that had happened to like Natchez or Ajo, like what would the fan uproar be? You know, that intentional, the, you know, slew foot. I, like, I will. Yeah. I will say to Kane's fans credit. I really did not see anybody at least that I follow or on my feed defending or trying to minim- minimalize or anything like that with what Pesci did. It was, it was a lot of what we're saying right now that it's unacceptable and that he deserved um, discipline for it. it it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say funny, but it's like, we're always talking about how Pesci should get more league wide attention, more national attention. And I feel like last night he was getting attention from around the league and nationally oh, yeah. from a bunch of major accounts I saw. For all of the wrong reasons. All the wrong reasons. Can I tell yeah. you? Can I tell you? Uh, I tweeted the GIF of it, right? Yeah. And I immediately muted the not, notifications. Not um, I got 204 quote tweets to 45 retweets. So a lot of people had an opinion on what happened last night. <laughs> That's quite the ratio, a five-time ratio. <laughs> uh, that that is, is. You should be proud. Is pretty dramatic. And a lot of people were saying some very <laughs> aggressive things about Brett Pesci, as is what happens Get on Twitter. Ratioed. Yeah, it was just people just just letting letting Mr. Pesci know. And I'm not talking about Brian. I'm talking about Brett. That he uh, he made he made a bad move, and you know what he did. But it was a very uncharacteristic decision. Pesci is as good of, of a player in terms of. You know, staying clean and, and playing within the rules that you're going to find. So that was bizarre. It was just bizarre. Yeah. It's like that play warrants a suspension. I don't think that play is characteristic of Brett Pesci. It's not. No, I get no, yeah. That play is not Brett Pesci. Brett Pesci made that play. That's 100%. You cannot make anything else past that. But that shouldn't be how people think of Brett Pesci at all. I mean, it's... Yeah, and people... I, I saw people responding to, to that and were like, is that the kind of player Pesci is? And it's like, no. That's why that's why I'm like, what? <laughs> why did he do that? Like he has literally never done anything like that. In his six years in the league, he has never done something like that. And it was just it was crazy to see. I couldn't believe it. Like and he was mad at first when, when the penalty was called. And he or he was maybe he wasn't mad, but he was uh he was kind of yelling back and forth at the official. And at first I was like, 
Oh, he didn't. He didn't do that slew foot. That was somebody else. He's mad because he's getting called for the penalty, and and it wasn't him. He didn't do anything. I'm like, what happened? And then I watched the replay, and I'm like, what? Like, I couldn't believe that he was the guy who did that. Like yeah, on a we- on a team full of guys who would never do that. Like Pesci is it like at or near the top of that list of clean players who I would never expect. I think that's something really like with the Carolina organization is like they really don't bring in bad people. And I think that's like what the Andrew you're saying, the fan base like was pretty much mostly like, yeah, he should face a suspension for that. I think like the fan base really has a lot of respect for like the kind of like clean level that the Hurricanes play. And I I was looking at this before as like, granted, this is now back to back games with fines for the Hurricanes. Nino Niederreiter also was fined five thousand dollars for uh, he kind of he collided with UC Soros behind the net. And there's. There's another that debate to have. There's a little bit more gray, a a little bit more gray area with that one. UC Soros bends over to shoot the puck. Nino does not afford him the space. Nino can do a better job of avoiding there's a, him. Yeah, there's a height difference there too. There, but there's I don't a, think there there's was anything malicious with that one. And there's a debate between goaltenders playing pucks behind the net and like, are can goaltenders like be completely immune to being touched, but still be allowed to play the puck outside their crease. I think there's a lot of debate in that kind of regard. I don't think a goalie should get blown up, but if a goalie's like immune to being touched, like they, they can just hoard the puck behind the net. Nobody I, can do anything. Yeah. Like I saw, I remember people were comparing that to Clifford running over Mrazic. That couldn't be any more different in my eyes. Yeah. Peter Mrazic went out of his way to put himself in front of Kyle Clifford to play a puck near the blue line. That was All right. So dumb. Like like that was... that, they're to- like they're not comparable. Like they're, they're nothing about those two are the same. If there was somebody at fault there, it was not Kyle Clifford. Uh, <laughs> Mrazic is was out of his mind to go play that puck. And Saros on the other hand, he's just playing a puck behind his net. But you can see it from Nino's perspective too where he's like you know, I have a right to this area too, and I should be able to go get the puck as well. And it's not like he like <laughs> raised an elbow or anything on him. They they yeah, just collided. He collided helmet to helmet. Like who yeah. would intentionally hit a goalie in the helmet? Like they have such thicker, stronger helmets. Like you don't want to smack end. your face into a cage. Yeah. No, I don't think. I, I, yeah, I think. Look, I get it. Like he made contact with the goalie's head. Like I absolutely get why you're giving Nino a fine there. I also think that you, it, we're on different planets when we're talking about that and we're talking about the Pesci thing. Yeah. I, I think back to my my complete point that I was trying to make before those two back to back fines, the first, uh, the last time the Canes had actually faced supplementary discipline, whether it be a fine or suspension, was Kevin Westgarth in 2013 for board on the Kevin Westgarth. Yeah, we are. All right. We're now three for three. I'm throwing <laughs> it back to that um, era of Hurricanes hockey. Yeah, but outside, like, that? he was the last player to face Sylvania discipline. So I was just saying that was like, you know, the Canes are – it's one of the cleanest teams as it can come. So it's very uncharacteristic. Andrew, back to you. No, I was going to say, hey, do you, just, you made me think about that time that Kevin Westgarth scored not scored two goals in a, in a regular season finale, I think, against the Penguins. But, yeah, you're right. I think Pesci – I think one of the only other players that I, I think if Jacob Slavin did something like oh that, God, I would you destroy all technology that I own and go live in a doomsday bunker in the mountains because the world would be ending. But um, yeah, no, it's it's just very surprising. Like you, 
said to see it from Pesci and really to see it from anybody on this team. And I, for obvious reasons, hope that that's not a kind of thing we ever see again. I also saw people were like, uh, Brenda Moore should sit him next game, really uh, teach him no. a lesson. That is absurd. Absolutely not. You think Sorry, that Brett Pesci, happening. you think that Brett Pesci doesn't know that was wrong. You, you think he doesn't realize that he made his, a mistake. Like, do you really think he needs to, s- <laughs> does, he <laughs> like he, he's aware that was a bad play and he got fined. He should have gotten suspended. He didn't. The, no, you're not going to sit him out a game to teach him a lesson. Like the, he's, a, he's, he's an adult man. He gets it. I think. <laughs> Rod Brindamore is not going to say, well, the league should have suspended you, and they did, so I'm going to suspend you. Like, no. Again, his own father called it a dirty play. The man knows. I promise that. I promise you that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he gets it. And, again, he's never done anything like that in six years. So I think I think we're all on the same page. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I hopefully that nothing like that ever happens again in hockey uh, ever. Um, we'll see what Brad Marchand is up to tonight. At least not involving the Hurricanes. Hockey might be a bit too much to ask for. So, <laughs> I guess the final thing to kind of go over from the Detroit game was another solid start from Alex Adelkovic, who was stringing together, God, was it, four straight starts? Where yeah, he's... hang on. I'll, let me pull this up. I, I tweeted out his numbers over his last um, four starts. He's 3-1-0. and he has a he's three one zero with a shutout, six goals against, and a nine fifty seven save percentage in his last four starts. It's pretty good. Pretty good. It'll work. And the thing is, like in those games, like he had he had earlier in the year been kind of prone to giving up. Like I, I can't remember a goal in one of those four games where I'm like, oh my god, Ned, you have to stop that. And some of the saves he made, especially in like. The Florida game, the second Florida game, what did he make? I think 46 saves. Uh, 44 on 46 shots. Yeah, I mean, totally the reason that the Hurricanes were in a position to do anything in that third period. Uh, Yeah, he's he's playing really well. And I think, you know, last week it was funny. We said that, oh, you know, he's not going to be the backup when Mrazic comes back. And I still think there's a good chance that he won't. But I think there's more merit to the fact that he maybe should be. So before we head out, we've talked about all the games. We've talked about all the things that happened. Let's talk about Dougie, Douglas, Jonathan, Hamilton. There you go. He needs a contract, guys. He needs a deal. They need to make a deal. Pierre Lebrun on Insider Trading this week said on Tuesday, that Dougie Hamilton wants to stay in Carolina. That's a good start. He also said that he wants Alex Petrangelo money. That would be $8.8 million per year. And the Hurricanes want him closer to that of Tory Krug, who got $6.5 million a year. They are currently not close on a deal. They will not trade him. They are all in on winning. They will not trade him. Quite frankly, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised by any of it. All of it makes yeah. sense to me. He is going to be, if he hits the UFA market, he will be the number one UFA defenseman. And the last UFA number one defenseman was Alex Petrangelo, and he got $8.8 million a year over eight years. I don't think he's going to get that. <laughs> I get Stop why he's asking. I get. I don't think he's going to get that. I, I'm not sure he's going to get that from anyone. Probably not with the flat cap. 
with 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 this salary cap, I I don't see it happening. And you know, if it was different circumstances, I think that it's possible. It'll be interesting to see how all this works out. But yeah, I I didn't think any of this was surprising. I I think anyone who would have a you know, who, I feel like anyone around hockey would know that he would want Petrangelo money. That seems obvious, and it feels also obvious that Carolina would be like maybe not Petrangelo, but the number two UFA from last year was Tori Krug, and he got six and a half million. So that's maybe that's something that we're more comfortable with. Like I, I think there's a middle ground to be found there. The what the thing that I think they have to be the most careful with with this contract is the term. Dougie Hamilton will be what twenty eight, I think, when a new when a new deal kicks in. So if you give him a seven or eight year deal, he'll be thirty five, thirty six when it's up. You have to be really, really careful with that. With a guy who's coming off a major leg injury who already doesn't have a ton of speed to his game, because I think we've all seen, you know, guys like Drew Doughty, Eric Carlson, Brent Seabrook, Duncan Keith. Seabrook big, retired today. Big, yeah, exactly. And the Blackhawks are going to have to put him probably on long-term IR or something like that to get out, out from under that cap hit. But um, big money, long-term deals for, you know, big defense, big name defensemen at this age have a habit of going very poorly very quickly. And I'm sure that that's something the Hurricanes are thinking about. So really, I mean, especially when you look at where the Hurricanes are with some of the contracts that, you know, for Svechnikov, Natchez, they've got to be really careful here because if they make the wrong move in terms of overcommitting, in terms of term or money or both to Dougie Hamilton, it's something that could end up really hurting them down the line. Yeah, like Dougie Hamilton's contract is going to be really tricky because, like, I don't know, like, like, is your agent's always going to get the most money you possibly want? But like, I feel like Dougie's found a really good fit in Carolina. But right now, and like, yeah, he's put up good numbers. But like, you're in your contract year, you can't be like, well, look at the numbers I put up three years ago. Like, don't you want to pay me eight million dollars? Well, I mean, like, it was last year. I mean, yes, it's last year, but it's like this is your sample size for what you just did, and this is what we expect from you from what you like just. I did. don't disagree. I'm just clarifying that. Yeah, you know, he, it was yeah. as recent as last season, where yeah, he was a I mean, Norris like, candidate before he got hurt. But Fatrangelo got the money because he had four straight seasons in, in St. Louis where he had 15 plus goals and 50 plus points, mm-hmm. like for four straight seasons, and as being the captain, and on top of being solid defensively. You know, I think Dougie really had his first good solid defensive season last year. It was his first really good defensive year. And I think there's a lot of things. And also, if you look at Petrangelo right now, Petrangelo had a really, really bad start in <laughs> Vegas. Like, he's not looked good at all, which has been, like, a thing that teams are going to look at. Be like, this guy just got paid $8.8 million. He's just turned, like, 31, and he's playing very poorly. Like, you know, new team and all that, so there could be, like, some – grain of salt but i look at toy krug toy krug doesn't he scores like eight goals each year but he, he's getting like 48 50 assists a season he's putting up crazy like assist numbers and i think dougie's kind of in that role right now he's not scoring for the team he's getting really close but he's putting up a lot of assists for the team and i think that's like it moves me more towards toy krug but like andrew said i think the term is the scariest thing defensemen have such a drastic like 
drop off offensive defensemen, especially of such like a way of just falling off yeah. the radar. And I think Dougie can potentially escape this curve because his, his skills aren't really in his skating. He's never been a fast skater. He's always like, he's had like these little moves and cuts, but his really is his like hockey IQ. He's really smart. And knows you know who, when to like make plays, you know who he reminds me of with, with regards to that, that now that you say it, um, as a guy who as a defenseman is excellent offensively, but he isn't like a great skater, but he's like always like in position correctly. He reminds me mm. of Yoni Pickinen. Yeah. With that description. I... They're different players, but just in that description of how they move and where they find themselves on the ice, he reminds me of Yoni in that way. Yoni's skating and his stride was just so like Smooth. Like, I feel like there were people who didn't like him because they felt like he wasn't trying just because his skating and his stride that was is so exactly smooth true. and effortless. Like, I, and I'm going to stop shortly because I could go on for a minute about how underappreciated I think that Yoni Pickenin was in <laughs> one of the most here. underrated players yes. in modern Hurricanes history. I think Yoni Pickenin is a top five all time Hurricanes defenseman, like Ooh. just in the Carolina iteration. Hot take, but, hot um, take. We, we should make we a can, list for next week. That's a that's a that's hot take right there. I like that. We we can do this in in an off season or something. But yeah, but if <laughs> if you say you know, just just know for the future, if you say Yoni Pickenin's name, you're gonna get some opinions from me. <laughs> but yeah, as I was saying, like Dougie's like, it's not his skating. It's his like hockey sense and like positioning. He's like found himself to be really talented at he's been able to play it really well in carolina and it's like it's a question of i think he can avoid that curve due to the fact that he's not relying on something like skating but i think he can bounce back i think like this is like just a really outlier year for him like i don't think his like his leg injury like i don't think will be as detrimental because like he doesn't rely on his skating so this is like a really tricky one for me where i'm like i think hamilton can avoid a steep drop off but it's just like it's such high risk if you're signing a if you're signing a number one defenseman to a big term big money contract it's just in this in this era of like the flat cap it's probably could be one of the riskiest moves your franchise can make it could it could make or break a franchise i think would your opinion of it change if they hadn't gone and gotten brady shea because that's five million dollars that you're using on a guy like Brady Shea. You're paying Brady Shea and Jake Gardner combined ten million dollars about. Yeah. And man, is that too much? Yeah, I think that's definitely something because I also look at like I look at like um I wouldn't say like the current fourth line narration. I think I like it with Paquette and Lorenz better than I liked it with, you know, Fogel there. But like he's he's like, not you're, playing you're, well, by the way. Just off off note no he's not like, what's to be prototypical your team's fourth liners do you think of when you think like your team's fourth lines what you should be and i'll just go like i'll just go bottom six because like jeff skinner uh, like in buffalo because <laughs> rod likes to switch it up so i'll just go bottom six but i think of like martinook making like two million mcginn two million jesper foss two million like there's a lot of money and like fogel's like pretty much just like right on the cusp of two million just below it there's a, I think, right? He's like 1.8. Is that what it was? 
I thought is he one point eight or like two point one? He's he's somewhere in there. He's a tomato, but there's a lot of like little money tied up in like your bottom six and like there's a lot of two million, two million, two million, two million. And these it's kinda like these add up a lot like to the cap that like you don't really notice it at the time. You're like, oh two million dollars here or there. But like when you like your bottom six is like five guys making like two million dollars. It's it's a lot of that takes up a lot I, of money. Yeah. I think like, I with would the argue. Sheet money as well. It's like those are two are kind of killers right now for the Canes kind of cap situation. I, I would yeah. argue that having two million invested in all of your bottom six guys is way too much. Uh, that there's a reason why all these teams are have like two way contract guys in their bottom six that you've never heard of, and I like Fogel enough i i like mcginn i like martinook like all these guys but they when you're paying them all two million dollars you are those three guys like you're you're paying <laughs> for those three guys you're paying like the same amount that colorado is paying nathan mckinnon you know like like it, it, this stuff adds up like yeah. <laughs> and it, you know you have a guy like steven lorenz who is making 700,000 or whatever. He's on a two-year deal where he's making 700 to 800,000 on a two-way deal. He's been better on the fourth line. Like in Warren Fogel, it's like we're kind of getting off topic here. I'm sorry about that, but for Warren Fogel, it's like, man, what are you doing? Like you like you just signed a one-year deal and you're making 2 million dollars. Steven Lorenz has outplayed you on the fourth line. And like I know Fogel has some goals this year. But man, like he's just not playing well at all. Like he, like he's not engaged physically. Like he's just kind of disappearing all the time, and you can't have that from him. But I'm getting a little off topic. Let's go back to Dougie Hamilton. What would be a deal that? I guess I'll just ask. What do you think the deal is going to end up being? If it's with the Hurricanes, I feel like they're probably looking for maybe four or five years and you're probably settling on a middle ground between Krug and Petrangelo, maybe like seven to 7.5 or something like that. If he's dead set on getting a lot more term than that and on getting Petrangelo money, then the the deal's not going to be with the hurricanes. Yeah. Like I was my, in my head, I was like five by 7.5, I think is like, a fair amount where Dougie gets that upgrade of pay he wants and the Canes sign him to like semi long term, you know, like five years. Five years still is kinda like iffy for me, but I think five years is fair. I think it's a fair term because again, like the age thing, I think the NHL's moving towards the NHL's pivoting towards young players. Young players are gonna get paid more. Older guys are gonna stop getting paid more. It's just going to be the nature of it eventually. I don't know if and, Hamilton yeah. will be the first one to get this middle ground break for it, but I personally would feel comfortable 5 by 7.5 with a guy you know, hitting his peak. He's going to be like in the middle of like peaking to then downward a little. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was literally going to say 5 by 7.5. And Dougie's interesting because you're right that the league is shifting younger, but Dougie isn't old either. He's like yeah, yeah, right in that, like, talk about like it. he's not even Petrangelo from last year, who's like in his thirties. Like, he's still in his, he, like, he's twenty seven right now. Yeah, Dougie's twenty seven. It's so crazy to like think about. Like, it's like we talk about yeah. this age thing, the way the NHL's moved. Like, Svechnikov's like old twenty years Dougie. old, 
And like Dougie's like one of the oldest players on the team just by nature of the fact that Kane's have a young team. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. So Dougie's kind of like in that middle ground where it's like he's not young enough to where you're like, of course we're gonna give him eight years, and he's not old enough to the point where you're like, we can't give him any term at all. So like yeah, I kind of think five years is where you want to go with him. And like Andrew, you said if he wants eight by eight. Point eight or whatever and he won't It'll be come, somewhere else it won't happen it's just not going to happen and i don't think that's going to happen i don't think he's going to be rigid on eight by eight point eight but you know yeah, i think also like we have to keep in mind this could like i don't think dougie's really had many conversations like like i think when it comes those down are to preliminary it, numbers involved, but these are preliminary like these are agent numbers your agent is going to Max, 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 max. Every time your agent is going to want to come in, max. The team is going to want to undercut you to support the team. I think if a player wants to get more involved, because a lot of times we see this in the NHL, players like I, I don't really look at it. My agent just handles it. Shrug. Yeah. Like, and I think that's a big thing. I think if Dougie really wants to like get more involved with it, I think the numbers can like find a way uh, to get back, you know, together. But you know, I think. Uh, Right now, it's more like agent agent to GM talk more so than the player being like Dougie saying, "I demand eight by eight. Dougie went into the offices and we're like, he was like, "Look here," as he slaps his uh, briefcase uh, onto the table. He says, "I demand eight by eight point eight. I demand eight by eight point eight nine. I am better than Alex Fitzangelo, and I am not signing for a penny less than that." I think another interesting aspect of it is that Tom Dundon said, I think last year, that he was like, if we have good players, we're going to pay to keep them. And we are going to be involved on, like whenever a really elite player goes on the market, we're going to be involved in those discussions and all that. And he also said that, you know, they're they're discussing a new contract and they're within like a million dollars or something. They're not going to lose them over that. So I'm going to be interested in seeing if obviously things have changed drastically over the past year. So it's not fair, but I'm just saying that it'll be interesting to see if that comes to fruition with Dougie, if they negotiate and they get to within, you know, like let's say Dougie's camp comes down to eight and Carolina's like, okay, we'll go to seven. Would the hurricanes be willing to lose Dougie over that? Yeah, it's, I think it's not I, – I wouldn't call this Dougie Hamilton contract negotiation and what decision – I wouldn't call it the defining moment for, you know, this kind of Don Waddell management regime. It's going to be a defining moment. Yeah, sure, yes. Though. Yes. And it will probably be the defining moment to this point. Yeah, because I don't think – like Andre Svechnikov, like that's to, like. He's an, He's an RFA. That's going to get done. That's significantly easier. Yeah. Um, th- this whole situation with Dougie is very layered and very complicated. And like you just said, yeah. Brett, further complicated by everything that's happened in the past year and the financial implications of all of that. So, no, this, this is going to be – it's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. And I think, you know, we've kind of heard, you know – People like Waddell and Dundon say, hey, this is how we're going to operate. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. I feel like 
this whole thing is kind of a good litmus test of is this the way things are actually going to be you know this these kind of things like these deals are what separates the really good teams from the teams that aren't really good like like what teams are making the smart decisions here because if you make a bad decision like this is a huge deal like this is a first pairing defenseman a guy who is top seven or whatever and Norris after missing the final two months of last season like these these are important deals and it'll be interesting to see what happens this is just the beginning I'm sure this is going to be months of us coming back every week and just being like okay Doug you oh, had yeah. a good week is he worth eight million now but yeah I think that's all we have for this week we, we talked a lot of hockey uh, and a lot of a lot of Dougie Hamilton so we thank you for joining us this has been the Canes Country Podcast again Brett Finger, Andrew Schnicker, and Ryan Hankel. Andrew, where can the people find you on Twitter and only Twitter? At A-S-C-H-N-I-T-T-5-3. And Ryan? At R-Y-A-N-H-E-N-K-E-L underscore. You can find me at Brett Finger on Twitter. You can follow Canes Country at Canes Country. On Instagram, you can follow Canes Country at Canes Country Picks, P-I-X. Go to canescountry.com and read all of our coverage of the team there. Uh, please follow the Canes Country Podcast slash subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Google Podcasts, it's Apple Podcasts, it's Spotify, it's Stitcher. It's wherever you want to listen to your podcast. You can find the Canes Country Podcast, and you can listen to us again next week. Goodbye.